Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 368 of the podcast. It is May 4th, 2020. My guest today is Steve Feltovich. He is the president of SJF Consulting, Inc., and he previously had a long career in the automotive industry, in particular, the collision and repair space. Steve learned about Dr. Deming's approach and also learned the Toyota production system directly from Toyota and Toyota University. So he has a really interesting perspective that I appreciate a lot. So if you want to learn more about Steve, you can go to the blog post for this episode at leanblog.org slash 368. Steve, hi. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Doing well. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Well, I'm glad we can have this conversation today. And, you know, just to start off, like I, I like to ask guests, you know, to tell us about your first exposure to whether it was lean or if it was under the banner of the Toyota production system. You know, today we're going to talk also about Dr. Deming. So I guess the question is, what was your first exposure? Uh, what was the sequence to those um, different concepts that'll give you a chance to tell us about your career and your background? Right. Well, my first exposure was to Deming. So I, I always look at, I got a good foundation of the Toyota production system because my learning started with Deming and then progressed to the Toyota production system. And at the time, I was working for a Fortune 500 company, and I was walking down the wall, uh, halls one day uh, inside the corporate offices, and all of a sudden, uh, my eyes fell on Deming's 14 management points on the wall. Uh, it was in a framed, um, uh, you know, it was in a framed uh, piece of wood with glass over it, and and there it is. Deming's 14 management points were nailed on that wall. And I started reading them and I couldn't make heads or tails out of exactly what they meant um, because they were the short phrases, you know, create constancy of purpose for improvement of product and service was the number one. And, I, and I'm trying to put all this together. What does this mean? And people were walking down the hall and I'm there. Uh, these Deming 14 management points, what do you know about them? Oh, we had classes a couple years ago. Hmm. Some people went and someone nailed that up on the wall, but we really don't know what they mean. Uh, nothing became of it other than a few folks went to some classes and it was a short initiative and there they are. So I'm looking at these 14 management points and probably the person closest to them was the housekeeping people that, you know, shined, uh, shined the frame and polished the glass every week. Uh, they <laughs> 14 management points, but I didn't, I didn't see if they had implemented anything in housekeeping at that point, but that was my first exposure to it. And then, uh, I, I, it was in my mind. I had never forgotten it, but I never pursued it either. It was kind of lodged on my hard drive between my two ears, but I never pursued it at that point, which was Unusual for me because usually I dig in and research and study and see what it meant. But I got busy with uh, you know my role in in the business and moved on. And it wasn't and, and and what what was that role at that time? That was sales. Uh, I was okay. running sales territory, and um, 
it, it was funny, Mark, because I look back at that and there was a time period that had a significant time period because that was in the late 80s. And it wasn't until the mid 90s that, that a colleague of mine handed me Mary Walton's book, The mm-hmm. Demo Management Method. And that was the that was that was the fuel that lit the fire. Um, he said to me, you're doing a lot of this in training. You're doing a lot of this with our salespeople. Uh, you're doing a lot of this with our field technical people, but you don't have all the pieces to what you're doing. And you don't even realize that Deming's principles fit the way you think and the way you model your training and the way you model uh, learning. And I said, really? He said, you got to read this book. So he hands me the Deming Management Method by Mary Walton. And that, like I said, that was the fuel. I instantly, my DNA in, in internal chemistry linked with Deming's principles. And it was like, this is so simple. It, why doesn't everyone get it? This is world economies, if people actually got it, if businesses actually pursued these principles this way, it, it could have incredible impact in governments, in economies, in education systems. And I was like on fire. Well, that that was my foundation, which I think is still the core. I still look at Deming's principles, and um, and I think that's the core of my learning. And then I was introduced to Toyota. I started doing um, training inside the automotive industry for Toyota, and I started um, working very closely with Toyota and Lexus consultants. And then visiting Toyota factories around uh, the U.S. I actually visited NUMI, which was a joint venture with Toyota and GM before they closed that plant in Fremont, California. So I saw the joint venture of what Toyota had done and turned that around significantly uh, right under the microscope of GM. Um, But GM, they weren't leading the charge to their other factories with the learnings from from new me. So that was disappointing. But I had gone to many Toyota factories and, and spent hours there with Toyota consultants. And then I started doing uh, work for Toyota training on the dealership side. So I became a uh, Toyota University instructor at one point. So I've held that record for about 17 years now. And as I uh, worked closely with Toyota consultants, that's when I really got a full picture of the Toyota production system, which I think we've diluted significantly in the lean movement that we have today. So I'm, um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to all of that because I, you know, I definitely want to talk about your experience, more about your experiences um, learning from Toyota and working with them, you know, Toyota University this, this, this idea of dilution. Can, can we, uh, let, let's delve into some of the, the Deming stuff a little bit more. Sure. So, um, so yeah, I, I, well, and first I was going to tell so listeners might've heard me tell this story before, but you, your experience about seeing the Deming principles as something behind glass on the wall was very much my experience coming out of college. Um, 
1995 at General Motors, you know, the plant I was at had this document. It wasn't strictly the 14 points, but I've, I've written about this on the Deming Institute blog. It was something they called the Livonia philosophy, which was heavily influenced by Dr. Deming. So instead of the Deming philosophy, it was the Livonia philosophy. But by the and, and and this was appealing to me coming out of college to take the job there. And it didn't take me long to realize, to, to your point, like, well, nothing much came of it. It was the plant manager before my plant manager, or maybe even two plant managers ago, that had really been into Deming. And, you know, they did some things where they had a different contract, slightly different contract with the, the UAW. But my gosh, it, it was, it was um, no longer trying to even move in the direction of being a Deming organization. So, so I can appreciate maybe that sense of uh, that question you had of like, so this made sense to you. Why didn't it make sense to the organization and its leaders? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that was the, that was the part that was mysterious to me because they had gone through the classes. So someone, someone initiated that, right. Someone in the organization saw something that sparked their attention to sending people to these classes, but it just became artwork on the wall. Mm-hmm. That. Um, but it, it worked for me. And uh, I, uh, I never forgot it because then when he handed me the book, he says, well, have you ever heard of me? And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 14 points on the wall in the last Fortune 500 company I worked for, sure. <laughs> I've seen them, but I yeah. don't know what's in, inside of them. And uh, that was exciting for me. That was the turning point, really, uh, which led me to 25 years of consulting around uh, business improvement models. And so then, you know, what, one of the, the things, you know, I was curious to ask you more about, you were working in sales and this is going way back. I had to look up. It was episode 18 of this podcast back in 2007. I interviewed Eric Christensen, who was um, president of a, a company called Omnilingua. And, and he, you know, describes uh, what they were doing. They were trying to be a Deming company. And, and one thing they did was to eliminate sales commissions. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm curious, like, I mean, because that flies in the face of what's so typically done within sales. It's assumed salespeople have to be motivated with extrinsic in, uh, uh, incentives. I'm, I'm curious, like, um, what were what were your thoughts on, like, did that topic come to mind in in your initial study of Deming, or how how did that connect with you? That's a great question because it connected with me personally because I actually started to believe that sales commissions should be eliminated. I thought they were the root of all evil in terms of customer service and getting things right. Um, Sales commissions are very self-serving. So I saw our sales force as they a victim of a really bad process. In other words, they would create a bunch of workarounds to get their commissions and to get their bonuses. But if we could just give them a salary and a bonus based on some some corporate um, strategic 
uh, outputs, you know, or achievements that would be that would be far better suited, um, especially with our key account group. They were managing uh, 80% of our business um, with 20% of our salespeople. So when you look at the key accounts and we have them on commission, I wanted qualitative measurements rather than quantitative measurements. So it was a double-edged sword, right? These are commissioned salespeople. They're going to do the right things for themselves, but we want their behavior to be differently. Well, it's just not... It's just not human to think that that's going to happen on its own. So, I mean, I guess, in, I mean, quite quite literally, qualitative measure might seem like an oxymoron, but do you mean more like how would you qualitatively evaluate the effectiveness and the performance of a salesperson if not through numbers and quotas? Well, it could be how significantly did you grow your key accounts? In other words, mm-hmm. Did the key accounts grow as a result of you creating more value for them? Did you, and that's how the consulting business that I ran inside a, uh, a couple corporations, uh, primarily my last employer before I retired, I built our internal consulting team to do just that. Grow, organically grow our customers, which automatically pull more of our materials through those customers' operations. So the idea is, can we grow our current customers? Can we add quality and value to their operations, which automatically grows our sales? And so um, I was wondering if you could also, you know, if you could elaborate on um, what you had said, that, that learning Deming was a good foundation for TPS. I mean, I, I agree with the comment and I feel very fortunate to have been exposed to Dr. Deming's work before I had really ever learned much about Toyota. And a lot of people in the quote unquote lean community, whatever that means exactly, a lot of people yeah. who've studied Toyota and lean haven't had the benefit of that. Um, so, I mean, how would you elaborate on, on why that's either a helpful foundation or, or is it a necessary foundation? Tell us more about that. Well, yeah, and I've always looked at it this way, and maybe you'll agree or disagree, but I looked at what Deming did for Japan is what um, Taiichi Ono did for the Toyota production system. So Deming kind of sparked that quality movement building better products, having constancy of purpose, adopting a new philosophy in Japan after World War II. And he really revitalized uh, the executive uh, fundamentals in terms of how do we manage the business so it, it becomes a market leader and a global competitor and it's sustainable. And people, people line up in groves to buy products from Japan, I think they probably thought, man, Deming's crazy. Well, we're down on our knees. It's after the war. We don't have the resources. How are we going to be and do what he's saying we can be and do? And um, I, I think it was, the, I think that was what they needed. And he continued to beat the, you know, constancy of purpose rather than just make money. Uh, Look at your product. Look at the quality of your product. Let's reduce defects and 
inferior products and waste and rework and turn that turn those savings into continually building better and better products and eventually uh, the market will come to you you will you'll expand you'll grow you'll build more facilities more products and hire more people and and I guess that that prediction from Deming became true. Well, and note to the listeners, they, they might not have known this unless we bring it up here, but um, you know, from this point, Steve and I, this is sort of part two of our podcast recording because when we did the first part a week ago, I was in a location where uh, it's funny, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about Dr. Deming and you know, the, the average internet speed where I was, uh, was perfectly fine, but variation in bandwidth was causing a problem. So we uh, we stopped and we're picking picking back up here. But uh, that's, that's sort of ironic, isn't it, Steve? Yes, it is. Uh, variation takes place in in everything, right? And we have to learn how to deal with that and anticipate it. And you did an excellent job pulling your end on cord on <laughs> on your side of the uh, the conversation. So I appreciate that. Well, I, I wasn't able to do it right the first time, but but that's that's something that's sometimes often just just an empty slogan, right? Do it do it right the first time. Dr. Deming didn't didn't care for slogans much, did he? No, not at all. Um, but I, I I will work on. I, I've got some. I, I think I'll, I'll try to improve my system in the future by not recording podcasts um, from that location. So I apologize for for the inconvenience and. Appreciate you being patient with that, Steve. But you know, we've we've been talking about Dr. Deming, and you know, you've already touched on you know a few key points, you know, uh, you know about um, sales commissions and other other things that Dr. Deming would have talked about. What are some of the other Deming concepts that that resonate most with you? I guess you know, keeping in mind, I've, I've seen you talk about how you know these four these fourteen points aren't something we can really pick and choose from, right? Right, I. I think a lot of companies uh, and people pursuing um, a Deming-like model for their organization, whether it be through application of some TPS, uh, Toyota Production Concepts, or Lean, which is the term that actually came from the Toyota Production System. But the Deming 14 points uh, I, I don't think you'd peel them apart and you'd pick one or two that you like. They work in unison with each other and are complementary to each other. I think they require all of them to complete what Deming would call the system. So a lot of people will one or two of Deming's 14 points away, as they do with the Toyota production system. They peel away the tools and they implement a couple pieces um, and, and you, you know, they're just elements of a complete system. Once you peel bits and parts away from it, uh, you're, you're, you're still a traditional system with, with what I would call one best practice. Mm. It's not a real strategic business model. You've added best practices at that point and you don't have a complete system. You're not looking at it from a systems approach. And that's what Deming's 14 points do when they're all orchestrated inside an organization. You, you then have the building of a complete system. 
and everything integrates to to that one common goal, which is your constancy of purpose. And I think, Mark, you and I have had conversation on this. Um, a missing element today that I see with a lot of clients that I work with um, since I started my own business after retiring from the corporate world and a lot of clients I work with, they don't have the number one point in Deming's 14 points. Their constancy of purpose is really muted. Uh, it's, well, we want to be profitable. We want to make money. Um, um, we want to, we want to reach this goal of sales revenue. Well, those are all results of having the right process and method in places. Dr. Deming spoke very much to um, a goal without a method is nonsense, he would say. And a lot of people aspire to have these goals, these lofty goals for their organization. And every time I'm with a group of uh, uh, students or an audience at a conference or something, I will ask them, what are you in business for? And almost every single time, it's we're in business to be profitable, to make money. I said, no, you're not. Even Peter Drucker said, a business exists to create a customer. You don't have a customer, you can't make money. You can't be profitable. And Deming's point was very similar. Create constancy of purpose or improvement of your products and services. And if you don't have a constant purpose or goal for the company to create uncompromising quality in your products and services, you fail on the very first point, which means the rest of the points fall, you know, fall on deaf ears or are somewhat meaningless to the entire organization. The nucleus starts to, starts to come apart. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about being, you know, a a complete system, a holistic system. Toyota these days um, uses similar language to talk about the Toyota production system. They'll they'll refer to it as an integrated system. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of us have seen the problems that that pop up when somebody copies one piece, you know, organization installs, um, and on cords and, and the lights and the technology and everything to do that. But the culture doesn't allow people to actually pull the cord without getting in trouble, uh, you know, for slowing down production. And, and so, you know, yeah, we, we, we cop- there's risk in copying and pasting a tool and throwing it into a culture where that tool might be unhelpful or, or maybe even counterproductive. Right. Exactly. Um, if, if if you say you're driving out fear, for example, and we're going to allow our people to tell us the problems with what they encounter every day inside the organization with their job tasks and activities. So we strip away the fear. They're allowed to uh, voice the problems and bring attention to it. But if management isn't, isn't getting together on this and from your standpoint and comment on a holistic approach to fix the entire process upstream and downstream, um, bringing the problems up is meaningless unless we're drilling them down to root causes. And then we're actually building better processes to help the employees and the workers on the floor not to encounter those again. This, I think we fall short because we want this system up and running quickly without Mm -hmm 
mm-hmm. stopping points. And Toyota, if you dig into the history, the line stopped frequently at the beginning because mm-hmm. Ono, uh, Ono had it that way. He created a fragile system. If you remember, he started to strip out inventory buffers and equipment buffers so the system would fail uh, to the point of learning, to the point of it failed. We want want an entire machine-like system running here. We want parts to flow into it just as needed. We don't want inventory buffers to hide our waste and mistakes. And he stripped it clean. Well, that line stopped quite frequently until they drilled down on each and every problem and came up with a resolution for it. Well, and it's fun. It's interesting that you use the word um, fragile and you're talking back, uh, looking back to Taiichi Ono. Like when you look into the history of um, Jim Wobach's research team and, and you know, Dan Jones and Daniel Ruse and, and John Krafsik and others were involved. Um, there, there's one article by John Krafsik where he talks about um, fragile systems and, 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 and they'd sort of debated, you know, well, you know, should they refer to it as fragile manufacturing? And, you know, I think the word lean certainly has its problems, but you know, I don't like the word fragile, you know, maybe that wasn't the, the, a label that would have drawn people in to learn more either. Yeah, that's quite humorous. But I think outsiders would look at it as being, well, that's too fragile. That's too dangerous. Uh, that puts the system at risk without this buffer. But Ono looked at it differently. He says, if we're ever going to get it right and we're going to make the entire system work as, a, as one giant machine, then we got to synchronize everything perfectly. Uh, and we can't have over inventory. We can't have under inventory. We can't have a faster tack time then our people can keep up with the pace on the line. So yeah. it, it took constant work every single day until synchronization took place. But I think from an outsider standpoint and a traditional management uh, mindset would look at it and say, oh, that's too dangerous, that's too fragile. <laughs> yeah. But I've proven with clients all over the country, uh, U.S. and Canada as well, uh, that inventory hides enormous process problems and waste, and 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 that that yeah, and and that fragility is a real problem if if people don't have or aren't willing to work at developing problem solving skills. And I could see where people would get uh, frustrated and say, "Ah, let's let's just go back to buffering the heck out of it. We'll, we'll throw that inventory back in," which might alleviate stress in the short term, but maybe, you know, isn't, isn't helpful for the long-term good of the organization. Right. I think that's a key point that you made. I think the people get frustrated with it too quickly, uh, maybe because they don't have a, a, a good coach. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, coach that's been through it and understands the highs and lows of the early stages. Um, and, and the pitfalls of it and is there to really coach them through it until they get past that learning curve. Otherwise, they do kind of throw in the towel and go back to traditional management because that's what they know. That's it's comfortable. Yeah. And, and that's what they say, you know, wow, um, 
I'm, I'm too afraid to be out here on this limb. I got to get back to the, the tree trunk that's sturdy and strong, and I know I can hang on for life. Hmm. Hmm. So when, when you're working with organizations, um, you know, it, it's never like flipping a, a light switch to adopt um, a, a new mindset. You know, Deming would have called it, you know, new philosophy. You know, have got 14 points, and it's different, and it's uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, what, how, how do you help an organization get started down this path? Well, what's been successful for me is, first of all, I tell them, you know, it's kind of a leap of faith because you've been practicing traditional management techniques for however long you've been in in the role, you know, so you've been conditioned by that. uh, Even through the education system, you've been trained Mm -hmm. to be a traditional manager. So to flip a switch uh, overnight and all of a sudden you're a lean thinker, that's that's not even possible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or even realistic. So I spend a lot of time conditioning um, senior executives, uh, owners of companies. I spend a lot of time conditioning their mind. And what I mean by that is conditioning their mind to see how traditional management principles will, will not sustain their business long-term in the new world. And what I say about the new world is, well, there's no mass production automobile manufacturers any longer. They're all blended lean or full lean. So there's mass production's gone. Traditional management eventually does go away, even though you and I wonder when, uh, eventually Mm -hmm. it does uh, because you're a supplier to a lean manufacturer or you're working with a a lean business and you're not lean. So what happens? They eventually fire you unless you become lean. So somewhere in the future, um, traditional management principles actually will disappear and every, everyone that's left behind will be lean. And I've seen this in certain industries inside Europe and stuff where there, there are no traditional managed businesses in that segment any longer. They've all given way to lean thinking, at least a leaner blend, if not fully. So you're saying in, maybe given enough time, the market takes care of things, that the, the, the lean company is yeah. more successful. If you're, if you're and, a supplier, Mark, let's let's role play this for a minute. If you're a supplier mm-hmm. to me and I'm a lean manufacturer, now the production world or the Honda world, which I'm very familiar with both, I would send my consultants in to work with you as a supplier to me and make you better um, and teach you lean principles and help you with hiring the right people, uh, the right mindset to fit in your organization, helping you with quality, helping you with process, um, drilling down on waste and defects and errors, and getting just in time perfectly synchronized with my lean production model. Now, if you reject that as a supplier, how long can I keep doing business with you? Because now you're ruining my machine, my lean machine. Mm-hmm. 
you're impacting my lean machine in a great way. I, I cannot deal with that if you're not accepting to become lean and be synchronized with what, what we're buying from you in terms of products and services. So I want to uh, maybe you know, delve a little bit more into um, what you're talking about a couple of minutes ago. We're working with executives or, you know, kind of, you know uh, use the word conditioning or um, are, are there, have they already started convincing themselves uh, by the time they've reached out to you? Or I'm, I'm just curious, you know, like what level of skepticism yeah. is, is still there? How, how do you help people discover uh, um, and, and, and convince themselves that they should go down this different um, leadership? Well, it's funny that you bring that up because often I think about it too, because I don't want to get discouraged. Um, the time frame it takes to what I call reverse condition, the mindset. But I think of Gary Convis and when Toyota hired him before he became the president of Georgetown, Kentucky's plant, it took them 15 years to reverse condition his thing. Mm-hmm. Now he ran plants for Ford and General Motors, I believe both of those companies, um, if I remember correctly. I think you're right, yeah. He had much experience running two domestic plants, right? But here's Toyota. We have to reverse his condition. (laughs) Take us 15 years before we allow him to run one of our plants. So I, I thought, I always think of that, Mark, only because, wow, I got to get in front of these people for some time, but most of the time I have pretty good success because I bring them up to speed of, I show them what's wrong with the traditional management thinking, what's right with uh, uh, a lean thinking based on Deming's principles. And one thing that you and I, I think we, we talked about this briefly. Um, One thing that's a real eye opener. And I say really an eye opener is when I take him through the red bead experiment. That means red mm-hmm. bead. As simple as that experiment is, it is still so profound when I show them what's wrong with rating each employee. Mm-hmm. Systems broken. They're drawing red beads. They're ready, willing, and able workers. Mm-hmm. And so frustrated because they can't hit the minimum of three red beads that I put on it per draw. And yeah. It's the system around them. And then we're still counting red beads. Quality inspectors aren't doing anything to change Mm -hmm. and help these frustrated workers because they're not succeeding. So we're still just counting red beads. Well, we already know we have so many red beads. What are we doing to fix it? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And one day a a willing, able worker is a hero, gets a (laughs) The next day, they're zero because they pulled so many red beads, and it's the luck yeah. of the draw. And that's the way so many organizations are set up. Our employees win one day and lose. <laughs> the ones that win consistently year after year, they're the ones that figured out their own work around the system. And they know how to cheat and work around the system to be a hero every year uh, consistently. Um and they've kind of melt, melted themselves in the organization in a way where I can blend right in here uh, like wallpaper on the wall. No one will discover me, but I got a workaround that works. It keeps me at the top of the pile. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, the red beet experiment is something I use a lot and it's um, you know, it's, it's, it's thought provoking and challenging and, and sort of a amazingly non threatening way for people to kind of step back and, and then draw connections to their work about, you know, um, how, how, how it, it's, it's sometimes quite random. We're giving employee of the month awards or, or we're firing people because of poor performance. Um, it's really challenging for people to think about how some of that might be um, heavily influenced by randomness. And, and, and so you're just making me thought, think of, um, kind of a thought experiment. I'm curious your thoughts. So let's say somebody at each opportunity in their career, it's them or someone else being promoted. And that's decided by a coin flip. And as they move up through the ranks and then like eventually they become CEO, like it's possible that somebody is going to uh, flip a coin and have it come up heads eight times in a row. Right. Right. I don't mean. Right. And, and I, I talk about that quite often because the difficulty is someone uh, works through the organization as you've stated and they become president or CEO it's difficult for them to say, wow, uh, we need to radically change this organization. It just rewarded me. Yeah. Yeah. It just rewarded me. I'm CEO, but, and then you or I come in and talk to the CEO and say, look, the place is dysfunctional. You have broken processes. You have errors, mistakes, defects, scrap, rework, uh, high inventory. We can show you a better process. And, they're, they're like saying, yeah, nodding their head, yes. Mm. Meanwhile, inside their brain, they're thinking, wait a minute, this place just rewarded me on this broken dysfunctional system that Mark and Steve are talking about. How, how, how can I admit to that in front of everyone and say, yeah. we need to radically change it up? Yeah, I mean, I think it takes a really special type of leader to admit that the system is broken when they've not only been part of the system for so long, but like you said, they they were a beneficiary of it. You know, I saw like you know, when I was at General Motors, and yeah, you know, after the first year of of disastrous performance, they brought in a new plant manager who was one of the original GM people who had been sent to Numi, and he didn't have 15 years, you know, like Gary Convis did, but he had uh, a number of years. And, and he was a very uh, different kind of leader. But, you know, one, one lesson I think I take away from the experience where he came into our plant and then performance really got amazingly better within a couple of years is that, you know, he, he was an outsider. He, he wasn't wedded to the way it had been. It didn't hurt him personally. He didn't have that urge to defend the existing system. And, and, I, and I just kind of question sometimes, I see a lot of organizations that even use the word transformation. And, and I'm skeptical sometimes um, of whether a leader who's been in an organization for 30 years can really lead transformation. So like I see this in healthcare, you know, Mary Barra at General Motors, you know, talks as CEO, talks about, you know, transforming the company and, and, and she's been there for a very long time. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts around the ability of, of someone to transform their own organization versus the benefits of, of being new or being an outsider. That's a great question. 
I have seen it. I have seen it both ways, but I'm trying to think. Um, well, hmm. I can't really answer that. I don't have a real percentage on it because I haven't tracked it that way. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But but generally speaking, I, yeah, I believe I believe in in my experience with it. I believe that it is very difficult for the person in the top chair to make that change if they've been part of that bureaucracy for a long period of time. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure they actually get their their mindset in the right place to ever pull it off as well. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's the other thing. Why do I want to roll up my sleeves and do some real hard work because I'm looking at the end of my career? I'm on mm-hmm. the end of my career. I'm looking at retirement, my stock options, and and uh you know, everything else that's come together for me. Um, I'm, I'm getting off of this train. Why do I want to say, you know, we need to start working on the train and the tracks and rebuilding everything and rebuilding the engine and, and retraining everyone that works on, on, on the train. Why would I do that? I'm nearing the end of the, I'm going to get off in the next station at the next station here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we could think sometimes, um, uh, well, okay, the next generation will think differently and they'll fix things. But then that new generation gets uh, influenced by that same system. And there's that, you know, have, have they been changed by the system before they can get to a point where they're able to change the system? That's true. They become a victim of that environment and that training. Um, it's it's just inevitable that if you stay in that environment long enough, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, you become poisoned by it. Uh, if you stay in that thinking in that think tank of complacency, and that's the biggest thing, there's no sense of urgency or complacency. Um, I can see the end of the train track here. I see that station coming. I'm just going to sit back and relax, you know, uh, there's enough momentum to carry me to where I want to be. So that in in most organizations, uh, that's the number one killer. The right mindset is they get complacent. They yeah. get lazy. They get uh, well. I'm self-serving. My you know I got a self-serving agenda here, and I can see the end of the track and the station coming up, and it's not that far. So let's, um, I'm, I'm curious, let, let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, some of the work um, when you were in industry and, you know, I want to hear more, you know, more of your stories about applying ideas from Deming or Toyota or Lean. You, you were doing work in not car assembly, but but car repair, right? Yeah, in the collision repair market, as well as fleet and manufacturing um, as well as working with insurance companies on on the automotive uh, damage side, claims damage side. So I've got experience with OEs on their aftermarket world, working with dealerships, uh, 
with the OEs as well as insurance companies, as well as collision repairs. And, and, and OEs being the automakers, right? Yeah, the original equipment manufacturers. Right. So um, I was wondering, you know, uh, can you talk about how that business was influenced by Deming, Lean, Toyota principles? Um, I imagine that hasn't always been the, the case or the default in that industry. I was wondering if you tell a little no, bit. Tell no, no. And if you look at it, I think um, Europe, the UK, uh, when I was over there in the mid 90s, in the late 90s in the, in the UK, they were uh, on their on their collision repair side and their dealership side. They were tracking along pretty quickly with lean manufacturing principles. Um, at one point, they had sixteen thousand four hundred collision repairs in the UK. They're at about twenty eight hundred today. Um, most of the mom and pop type operations have gone away. Everybody's a lean production collision repair over there today. And what I mean by lean is they focused on uh, the process. They focused on um, parts inventory, how they order things, uh, quality of work, uh, everything from taking care of the employees better to having cafeterias and showers at some, some of the locations. And they really got, sharp on a small business they took it to corporate style thinking but not corporate in the traditional sense but corporate in a in a lean sense a toyota production system application to collision repair was very common in the uk uh starting in the year 2000 rolling up to 2015 when they shed they shed 82 percent of the collision repairs in the market because the lean the lean operators just could output three units repaired to their to the traditional model which only produced one. Hmm. So so there's an example of the the lean company winning in the marketplace. Um, I wonder what 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 were the dynamics in Europe versus like has, has that played out here in the U.S.? I, I don't know really anything about the the collision and repair market here. Well, it has played out to some degree, just not as significant. And, there, and there's regulations, uh, uh, in things inside the antitrust rules and laws here in the U.S. that prevent the strong teeth that they have in laws in Europe. In other words, they can restrict parts in Europe very easily. So if you're not a certified shop and meeting the requirements and, and are licensed by a third party, you cannot even buy parts for that type of vehicle outside of what you're certified for. So they keep that really regulated well. Uh, we don't hear yet. Uh, we will. It's starting that way with certain certified programs from like the Land Rover and Jaguar and Mercedes Benz. Um, they're taking, you know, or they're they're taking the the right road. They're restricting parts and restricting repairs from touching your vehicles. Now they're doing this through technology um, primarily, and what they're doing is when the vehicles. Uh, 
involved in an accident. The vehicle itself actually can make the claim now from a technology standpoint through the cloud and the manufacturer knows it's damaged and the car gets sent directly to one of the certified shops in, in the, you know, in the vicinity of where the accident took place. So we're starting to see the European companies primarily, the Asians are on board now, and they're directing these vehicles to certified shops. So we're, you're going to see the teeth that Europe had in the walls years ago, directing vehicles to only certified shops that are able to buy parts to repair that because they have the equipment, they have the training, they have the, the skill, um, and they get the the annual audits to pass and continue to be recertified. So therefore you have now the right place repairing that brand car. Yeah. And so what, what process would you go through? I mean, do you do consulting work with collision and repair organizations today? Or is it, is it more broad than that? The, the work that you're Yeah, doing? I, I do. Yeah. My business since, um, uh, since I started in 2017, kind of took me broader than just collision repair. But I, I work with a lot of companies and I work with some equities as well in giving them guidance for investments in various businesses. Uh, and we, we look at those from a traditional business and how much waste is in it and what the opportunities are if it were to be leaned out with lean thinking. Uh, and a lot of traditional businesses uh, – they're operating under under 60% of their potential because they're traditionally managed and they've got gobs of inventory, bad process, um, bad employee uh, to management relationships. And all that can be cleaned up, as you know, with, uh, with lean thinking, lean training, lean implementation. So the private equity... Uh, companies that I work with, or they're they're on to this. Uh, they look at it under that microscope as well. And so they're they're bringing they're bringing you in, or I'm thinking of even just kind of prototypical example. They're bringing you in not necessarily because they agree with uh, how much do they agree with the uh, the pathway you would recommend versus they're just saying, look, we need better results and you've gotten better results in the past. So help us get better results. Well, they're actually looking at it from an investment standpoint. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to spend their investors money on a company uh, that they don't feel has the longevity to make that investment sound. So they're looking at companies that uh, let's look at them. Uh, are they real? Are they reporting their numbers correctly? Uh, what are what's their operational excellent currently? What could be done to operations to improve it? And what would be the forecast or you know give us a an estimate on the the current value versus future value? But then there, there's, I guess, there's that discussion that they they might have about what, what's the what's the the best pathway or what pathway are they choosing to try to move in that direction? It could be lean, it could be any number of methodologies or a search for best practices or, or other things that 
that Dr. Deming might have poo-pooed, right? Right. Well, I think you and I would probably both agree that private equity companies generally uh, look at a five-year term and flipping it to make more money, and that's really what they look at lean for is uh, a shot in the arm. And and too many people look at it that way as, oh, we can get some quick upside from this. And and once we post some nice numbers, someone shows up, uh, you know, and wants to bid on the company. And if it's a number that we like, we'll take that and move on. And I think that's partially what they look at. Um, I think they're intrigued by uh, lean organizations and what they really provide. And in some cases, some of them really want to build um, a better business and sell sell a good business that has sustainable value. And it's not just a, uh, you know, a money grab for the short term, but I would probably say 97% of them are private equities and they do what private equities normally do. But they're, they're pretty keen on uh, lean manufacturing principles, if that's what you want to call it, or lean thinking. Uh, they're, I mean, they're on their game. They know exactly what it is uh, when they dig deep down into it and you have a conversation with them. Um, it's not like they don't understand it. They understand it perfectly well. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to sign up for the whole mm-hmm. 14 points. So, but, <laughs> you know. Uh, they're they're on top of their game. They're not yeah. missing much. They're not missing anything in terms of an understanding of it. Well, there's a difference between you know what what Dr. Deming called um, constancy of purpose, and, and and Toyota talks about long term decision making, the long term perspective. I, I think it's no accident that point number one in uh, the, the Toyota Way framework from, from Jeff Liker's book that he wrote, um, you, know, learned, you know, partnering pretty directly with Toyota, point number one is about taking the long-term perspective. And so I think, you know, whether it's private equity, like you said, there are some that take a longer term, grow the business kind of perspective, but there's this tension or this balance between short-term and long-term views. I see this um, in in healthcare, which so instead of car collision and repair, it's it's human uh, collision and repair in different ways. You know, there are hospitals out there that that frame lean as um, a series of cost savings projects. It might be lean. It might be lean six sigma. Um, we have you know, experts, specialists. They might not even be experts, but they're specialists. They've been trained and belted, and they're supposed to go projects, go do projects, and we're going to add up the benefits. And or th- those tend to crash and burn in an organization versus organizations that are really, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to get to work with some that say, well, you know, we're really trying to change the culture in a sustainable way, and it's not easy to become Toyota, but we're, we're going to put in the work. We're going to put in the effort. And sometimes they could get discouraged because that effort um, is, is uncomfortable and it's difficult, but there, I mean, I think that that's the core of it, right? Are we using, trying to use lean tactics for short-term benefit, or are we really trying to change the organization for the, for the long haul? Yeah, exactly. I think it goes back to when I hold a conference and ask everyone what their main objective is and why are they in business and it's to make money. And then I'll talk about creating constancy of purpose and I'll take 
the make money banner down and they'll put up, well, here's our new purpose, but you know, it's phony. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're really looking at the short term and it's to make money. They're gravitating towards lean because, oh, we're going to get super efficient. We're going to drill down on our costs. We're going to have better margins. We're going to grow our top line and then we're going to be sellable. So, uh, and, and you have a lot of people that unfortunately have been victims to that in terms of the workers, you know, yeah. that they're the ones that really suffer the pain of that uh, in many organizations because it's a consolidation world out there. And, and someone walks in with a checkbook and is willing to write the check and all of a sudden your motives change. Yeah. So um, I want to touch on a couple other things before we wrap up here. You know, um, you, you, you've been uh, active, very active on LinkedIn, and you know that, that's basically how we met. And um, your headline, at least a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if this has changed, but your headline that you chose to describe yourself says "Driving Change for Measurable Improvement." I was wondering if you could elaborate on what that phrase means to you, and 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 why you you chose that as a, as a label or a summary. Yeah, that's a great question. And no, my tagline hasn't changed, Mark. So you were safe in bringing that up and <laughs> assure you that it's still posted that way. Um, it came from, I was working with the group in Canada and they, uh, they were a dealership in Canada and they have driving changes, their logo. And I said, man, I love a driving change. <laughs> so they gave me a decal and I, I uh, I had it. I've had it ever since I worked with them uh, a few years ago, and driving change. And I said, driving change for measurable improvement. I was sitting at my desk one day, and I said, I was looking at driving change. I love that. Well, wait a minute. Let's have for measurable improvement. Let's have something that shows we can actually measure the improvement, not with quotas uh, that Deming talked about, not numerical quotas, but back office measurement, not where we're pressing our workers to meet an unrealistic goal and taking their focus off of doing quality work every day and improving the system through Kaizen disciplines and, and learnings. Um, where I want my workers to be focused operationally on what they do and bringing the operational problems to me. But in the back office, um, I want to be able to measure it, look at the dashboard of the business and see that the needles on the gauges are pointing to we're always improving. And that's what I want to be able to show is we're going to drive change for measurable improvement that's consistent. And it's sustainable. It might not be big radical swings of improvement. Uh, we're going to be the tortoise and not the hare, but we're going to constantly work on operations that deliver the results. And then we're in the back office. We're going to look at our dashboard, our business dashboard, and see where those gauges are pointing. And then where, where, where do you find the balance? I mean, we you know, kind of close the loop on something you brought up earlier. Um, measurable performance versus other factors of, of, of trying to gauge uh, progress. You know, I think, you know, sometimes Dr. Deming um, gets horribly misquoted. At, you know, people will say something like, um, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. 
and they'll quote Deming when like, you know, the full, <laughs> the full quote says something, you know, uh, to the effect of, you know, people often say, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, you can't manage it. And that's ridiculous, or that's hogwash, or, or something like that. So I mean, you know, but, but you know, Deming's also associated with, um, you know, statistical process control. And, and so of course, you know, he wasn't opposed to measures, but I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, where do you strike the balance between, you know, some people sort of take a, a stance, which I think is very different than Deming and say, oh, like, well, if you just, if you measure everything and you set goals and well, just, well that, that drives performance as opposed to, you know, the, the, maybe the more Deming based idea of, you know, you need to understand what you do as a process and improving a process or a system will then lead to better results. Um, where, where, that, that wasn't the most succinct question of my part, but what are your thoughts? Well, I, I understand. Yeah. I understand where you're going, <laughs> and I'm, um, I try and balance my thinking on this because I, I hate measuring everything. I'll, I'll just say that, um, you know. And to your point, the quote that says, "If you, if you don't measure it, or if you can't measure it, you can't manage it." And I don't believe that's true. You better manage everything, even if it's not measurable. Um, and you shouldn't measure everything because a lot of that wasted time could be put to better uh, efforts and mm -hmm. and put energy in a more positive way into fixing things that keep the you know keep the the gauges on your business from pointing in the right direction. So um, I want to measure the right things. In other words, uh, when when you look at Ono when he started the Toyota production system, if you read into it, I I, re I was reading one day and I was like, man, this guy and I think alike, or I think like he did. Um, I I don't want to see all the reports and all the data on everything. I only want to measure what's important. He only wanted to see what are our sales for today and our units produced. If we're getting better on the line, we'll be producing another unit tomorrow and our sales will be growing. And if we're not, those are the only two things I need measurements on. The rest of your data, get it out of here because it's a waste of time as far as what's really important. Now, from those days and now, we have more technology and technology can automate and measure on its own. But a lot of things that are measured are misinterpreted. The data... Um, spits out reports and, and our people misinterpret it or they get hung up in an academic exercise where all their energy is in uh, deciphering the reports rather than fixing the system. So there's a lot of things that should be measured um, that, that aren't. And I find this often, a colleague of mine is a consultant as well, and we've been a colleague uh, in the corporate world and we still stay in touch. And I was just having a conversation with him two weeks ago. And he said to me, you know, most of these companies are measuring the wrong things. I said, absolutely. They measure the wrong things. And he said, the time consumed in measuring the wrong things is a huge piece of waste that they have to attack. Um, because he says, I go into these businesses and they've got 10 things they're measuring um, key performance indicators, and I only really need three or four. I said, yeah. exactly. 
Yeah, more more measures doesn't necessarily lead to more improvement. I think that's been proven out experientially in a lot of settings. And um, reacting to every up and down in the in in the metric, uh, you know, you, you need to explain every data point that's worse than the previous month. That that's in uh, uh, an, an attempt at explaining the system and, and I would argue that's not the right explanation either, but like explaining the system doesn't improve the system. And that's the case I've tried to make through my book measures of success and, and things I've tried to share on this concept of like, you know, stop wasting time explaining every blip and repurpose that time to actual, actual improvement, which you know, we, we can then use measures to gauge if we've improved and we can use measures to see, make sure, okay, well, we've actually taken the metric outside the range of what had been typical variation. You know, we don't want to say, you know, we have a below average data point and we do some sort of improvement and now it's above average. Hooray, we've improved. Like, well, that might just be more fluctuation. And, you know, I think that comes back to the question around, uh, you know, averages and and variation. And as, as Don Wheeler puts it and, and Dr. Deming before him says, you know, understanding variation is the key to managing chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think looking and studying at the data points, as you mentioned, I think a lot of knee jerk reactions take place as a result of that. And then we, we lose the go and see and study and look at the line, we'll talk to the workers, see what's going on. You make a decision off a data point in a back office, um, that's a huge mistake. And and uh, that's why I say work on operations. Let's get out there, talk to people on. It's no different in the hospital setting as it is in the collision repair shop. We could be measuring all those data points, but if we can't get the right part to the technician on time, the car doesn't go home on time or it's not fixed properly. We used an inferior part when it required an OEM part because it's mm. the technology and a lot of aftermarket parts today aren't, aren't uh, they're not completing the system that's required for today's vehicles. And there's, uh, I deal with that a lot, quite often insurance companies are paying for the aftermarket part while on new technology cars, they're not, they're not, they don't make up the whole system. Therefore, there's some malfunctioning on the technology pieces, and it's always related to that part being uh, inferior and needing changed out, which is a whole, whole nother discussion. But uh, if we can't get the right part to a technician, but we are studying all these reams of reports or tracking boards, it's mm -hmm. meaningless. Yeah, it's a great point. So uh, as we wrap up here, Steve, um, I know people can find you on. LinkedIn, you're probably the only Steve Feltovich on there. Is that? I, I think I, yeah. <laughs> by the way, uh, all, all Feltoviches are related in the country, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, do, is, is there a website or uh, another way people can find you or is LinkedIn? No, uh, pretty much by, yeah, by my uh, LinkedIn and, and email. I have a number of publications out there. If they Google my name and lean or, collision repair, um, my email addresses and cell phone and everything comes up for them. All right. And I'll, I'll link uh, in the show notes, um, the blog post of this episode to your LinkedIn profile and, and some of those other resources. So 
Um, Steve, I, I'm really glad we could have the conversation. It's uh, it's nice to be able to have a conversation that goes beyond um, you know r- relatively brief LinkedIn exchanges. So I'm I'm fortunate. Uh, I feel fortunate. You know, you, it, you know the the best of the best side of social media is um, meeting new people and having conversations as a result. So um, thank you again for what you've been sharing online and 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 for the engagement, and the opportunity. Uh, to talk and compare notes today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.